0: This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. It's time to stand up against big tech. Protect your data at expressvpn.com slash ben. Republicans are on a giant losing streak. They're on a losing streak for two main reasons. First, Republicans have disconnected themselves from data. Second, Republicans have embraced the performative over the substantive. First, the Republican disconnection. Feedback is the only way to course correct when you're doing anything in life wrong. If you refuse to adjust to the data you receive when you take an action, you're likely to continue making the same mistakes over and over and over. And yet Republicans have decided that data are our enemy, not that data ought to be questioned and examined and taken with a grain of salt, all of which is true. Republicans have entirely obliterated the feedback mechanism. Republicans very often seem to believe that the echo chambers that we've created are some sort of reality, that the Republican perspective represents a sort of silent majority, that the more extreme the rhetoric expressed, the less public support received, the more silent the majority. The problem isn't disconnection is that nobody will express their support for the Republican position, which is what they actually believe. Now, that may be true on certain issues. The Parents' Right movement is a great example, a broiling undercurrent of dissatisfaction that broke out into the open in Virginia in 2021 that polls weren't quite capturing. But it isn't true overall. Republicans have now created an unfalsifiable thesis. When we do something that's kind of unpopular, it's probably actually still popular because polling doesn't matter. And as it turns out, the other form of data feedback, elections, Those don't matter either. That attitude has been reinforced over and over again by Donald Trump. Because Trump won in 2016, despite the data, Republicans correctly inferred there were systemic problems with the data. And that was true in 2016. But then Republicans concluded that all data were not merely to be taken with a grain of salt. They could be disregarded entirely. And that was particularly true with regard to Trump. If Trump won, it was because the data were wrong. And if he lost, the data were still wrong and he had won. When Trump won in 2016, it's because the data weren't to be trusted, which was true. And when Trump lost in 2020, it's because the elections weren't to be trusted. This is why Trump can keep getting away with losing. The Republican Party is the de facto party of Donald Trump's leadership until somebody else wrests it away from him. That's how politics works. Under that leadership, Republicans have won one election and they have lost five. Trump's favored candidates have fared uniquely poorly. His chosen RNC chair, Ronald Romney McDaniel, has presided over an unprecedented losing streak. The problem isn't primarily the data itself. The problem is the Republican belief that data no longer can even be used as an important input in the political system. That's reason number one that Republicans are losing. Then there's reason number two. Republicans are so frustrated with our institutions that politics has become largely performative. As Yuval Levin has pointed out, our institutions used to shape our leadership class. You went to Congress. In order to become a Congress person, you would learn how to do Congress. You became president. Then you were shaped by the office. You grew into the office. Instead, our institutions have now become platforms for more notoriety. That dynamic is reinforced by a commentariat that cheers words and pays very little attention to actions. Saying the right thing, or forget the right thing, the most militant thing, is deemed more important than actually doing the right thing. We've been told by our commentary class that the thing Republicans lack is courage, willpower, that what we have here is a Nietzschean struggle between the Dionysian power of the strong and the vast underclass that hemmen our strunk like bull leaders. But that's not really how politics works. Politics is rarely about a lack of willpower. Most of politics is about knowing where the levers are and how to work them. Occasionally, you got a willpower issue, but a lot of the time, it's not about willpower. It's about incentive structure. But Republicans seem to enjoy the losing these days. They've despaired of ever winning again because the odds are so stacked against them. They feel that even if they win, they're still going to lose. The deep state will fight them. The media will destroy them. And here's the thing. Republicans aren't wrong about any of that. But the answer to that is competence, not raging, not screaming, not all caps tweets. Republicans seem to have forgotten that, which is why we treat candidates who make loud noises the same way we treat candidates who actually do things. And since loud noises matter most, and as it kind of turns out, most Americans don't really love loud noises, the problem of performative politics feeds right back into the first problem, the Republican disregard for the feedback loop. In fact, Republicans often treat unpopularity as a measure of virtue. The more people hate you, the more right you must be. Again, that can be true on occasion, but it's a really bad rule of thumb. So what can Republicans do to win again? Well, first, they can start to look at the data again and course correct. If Americans keep saying over and over and over again in five straight elections that they don't like something, perhaps Republicans Republican ought to take some note. Perhaps they ought to attribute that, not to nefarious forces that they can't control, but to the things that they can, so they can do something about it. Their messaging, their strategy, their unwillingness to stick and move. Second, Republicans can start to do things rather than just to say things. The answer to charges of malevolence, of evil, which is Democrats' favorite charge, Republicans are always either corrupt, stupid, or evil, and they love the evil argument the most. The answer to that charge is overperformance on behalf of the American people. The answer to charges of incompetence, which is Democrats' second favorite charge, is uber-competence, be good at your job. This is what Republicans should be looking for in their presidential candidates, especially because Joe Biden is incompetent. Now, Donald Trump is way ahead of the rest of the Republican field, like way ahead, 40 points ahead. He embodies both of these Republican problems to a T. He disregards all the data. That, by the way, can be one of his charms. He ignores the wags and he does what he wants. Sometimes that's fantastic because everybody is wrong and he's right. But the problem is that if you apply that rule consistently as a rule of thumb, that's a strategy that actually makes defeat more likely. And then second of all, Trump is the most performative politician in American history, which is why so many people dislike him. Trump could theoretically learn from the data. He could embrace his own record because he actually did a good job as president rather than the performative aspect of his personality. But That seems really unlikely, which means that Republicans should, at the very least, take a look at the other candidates on the table. That's what the third Republican debate night was supposed to be about. We'll jump into that debate night in just one second. First, I gotta tell you, my sleep quality these days, there's too much going on, not sleeping great, but the thing that is allowing me to sleep at all is my Helix Sleep Mattress. I've had my Helix Sleep Mattress For, I don't know, almost a decade at this point, it was made just for me, so it is firm but breathable, which is exactly what I need. If my mattress is too soft, it hurts my back. If it's not breathable, I heat up at night. Helix Sleep made the mattress that allows me to sleep well. Helix is now introducing their newest, most high-end collection, Helix Elite. Helix Elite harnesses years of extensive mattress expertise to offer a truly elevated sleep experience. The Helix Elite collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. Go to helixsleep.com men check out the new collection today. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be. Helix has a sleep quiz. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Because why exactly would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? I took that Helix quiz. I was matched with a firm but breathable mattress. Go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. Find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. They're offering 20% off all mattress orders plus two free pillows for my listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Ben. It's their best offer yet. It's not going to last long with Helix. Better sleep starts right now. we we'll get to more on this in just one second. First, We all know the first thing we do when we get home from work is change out of those work clothes and get into the comfortable loungewear. Well, luckily for me, I have Tommy John because as I slip into something more comfortable, my Tommy John loungewear set, I'm immediately enveloped in a cocoon of supreme softness and unparalleled comfort. Not only is their loungewear cozy enough to use as sleepwear, it's stylish enough to wear for a quick stroll to the park with my kids. And you won't look like you just rolled out of bed, even if you may have done just that. Tommy John uses luxuriously soft tri-blend fabrics with flexible four-way stretch. Plus, their fabric is non-pilling, meaning it doesn't leave behind lint balls or fuzz. And guys, you might be wondering how they can get any better. Good news. Their underwear, amazing. I mean, I've been using them for years, literally throughout all my other pairs of underwear. Incredibly durable. Their fabric moves with you. It's just great stuff. Plus, Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee protects your most valuable asset. So shop at Tommy John. Get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash Ben. Save 20% for a limited time at TommyJohn.com slash Ben. That's TommyJohn.com slash Ben. See site for details. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that when people say free, they should mean, you know, actually free. When you switch to Pure Talk today, you will get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. No four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last, rugged screen, quick-charging battery, top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just $35 a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. PureTalk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G Network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family will save almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free, brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro. Switch to my cell phone company. I've been using Pure Talk for years at this point. I can tell you, that coverage is excellent. I trust them. You can too. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro. and switch to my cell phone company today. PureTalk.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so jumping into the debate last night, again, I will just point out that Democrats are basing their entire electoral strategy for Joe Biden around Donald Trump being the nominee. Now, they're doing so because the data suggests that Donald Trump is likely going to be the nominee, but they're also doing so because they were able to beat Donald Trump with a dead man in 2020. And what they figure is, yeah, he's a dead man with a bad record, but he's still dead. And Republicans are going to ignore the data and Republicans are going to be performative. And that's going to allow Joe Biden to retreat to the basement while Donald Trump takes center stage. And so the entire Democratic campaign is going to be rooted in completely the wildness of Donald Trump. You can see that Hillary Clinton, for example, yesterday, she was on The View, still peeved over the fact that she lost to Donald Trump, which again, God's justice never sleeps. And one of the things that I see in American politics over and over and over again is that everybody kind of gets what they deserve in the end. Hillary Clinton lusted after power her entire life. And then she almost handpicked her opponent And then her handpicked opponent, the most the second most unpopular figure in modern American history politically, defeated her. So, I mean, she got what she deserved. That lady will never be president. But Hillary's tactic here is the Democratic tactic writ small. Here she is explaining why Trump is bad. And this is why Biden has to remain president.
1: What, in your view, would happen if he were to be reelected? Oh, I can't even I can't even think that because I think it would be The end of our country as we know it. And I don't say that lightly. You know, I hated losing, and I especially hated losing to him because I had seen so many warning signals during the campaign. But I immediately said, look, we have to give him a chance, we've got to support you know, the president we have. And I meant it. And I tried really hard. And then literally from his inauguration on, it was nothing but, you know, accusing people of things, making up facts, denying the size of the crowd at his own inauguration. And everything that I worried about, I saw unfolding. And so I, I think that he'd be even worse now.
0: And then she compared him to Hitler, right? That's going to be the Democratic campaign. The question is, whether Trump is going to swivel away from that and say, listen, I was uber competent. Look at my presidency. The stuff I did when I was president, booming economy, peace in the Middle East, a harsh harsh crackdown on Russian aggression, all those things, really good. Is he going to run that campaign or is he going to steer directly into this thing with people cheering him? That's going to be the question. And that's the question for Republicans. And this is probably why Republicans, you know, might want to take a look at some other candidates. Now, by the polling data, let's be real about this. The debate last night, the third Republican debate, was the undercard debate. Trump has been able to fly over the rest of the field. The entire Republican field right now, if it were a Star Wars cover, is the cover of Empire Strikes Back, with a bunch of action in the foreground and giant Darth Vader in the background, right? Donald Trump is just looming over the entire field, like a huge huge character in a movie poster. And the rest of the field is like fighting with each other in the foreground. That is what this looks like. With that said, should we take a look at some of the other candidates? We should, not only because it is worthwhile looking at all the candidates, but also, because it teaches us something about how Republicans are approaching matters of politics in general and what the flaws are. Okay, so the debate opened last night with the intros from each candidate. The candidates who were the most vocal last night, it really was kind of a three-person debate. There were, there were a couple people on stage who nobody cares about, Chris Christie and Tim Scott. The other three people on stage are Ron DeSantis, who's been basically holding position since the beginning of this race. He hasn't grown his, his share of the vote in any measurable way. He's basically been fairly stable, Since approximately June, July of 2023, right? Since since July of this year, he's been stuck at like 17 percent. He's still stuck at like 17 percent. Nikki Haley is the person who has seen some growth. She started off kind of linked with the rest of the field. She has now popped to about 14 percent in the Iowa caucuses, for example. And then you have Vivek Ramaswamy, who is still stuck down at four or five percent, but is very, very loud. Right, he's the loud noises guy in this particular race. Trump, by the way, is still up on the rest of the field by like 30, 40 points. Right, in the national polling average, it goes Trump 58, DeSantis 15, Haley 9, Ramaswamy 4, and then everybody else is below three. Okay, so here is Ron DeSantis. Now, again, as I say, I've said this before. I think that of the candidates available on the stage, Ron DeSantis is the best nominee. Why? Because he's actually competent at his job. He can point out successes in Florida and he can say, I did the thing. I did the thing is a pretty good campaign slogan. I did it, right? I made my state better. I made my state stronger. That's a pretty good campaign slogan. So that's basically what DeSantis was doing last night. Here he was.
2: Now, if you look where we are now, it's a lot different than where we were in 2016. And Donald Trump's a lot different guy than he was in 2016. He owes it to you to be on this stage and explain why he should get another chance. He should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. He should explain why he racked up so much debt. He should explain why he didn't drain the swamp. And he said Republicans were gonna get tired of winning. Well, we saw last night, I'm sick of Republicans losing in Florida. I- I showed how it's done one year ago here. We want a historic victory, including a massive landslide right here in Miami-Dade County.
0: Right. So DeSantis' campaign is basically debunking the second problem Republicans have. If problem number one was ignoring the data, problem number two was performative over substance. So DeSantis has posed himself as the substance guy. In one second, we're going to get to Nikki Haley's introductory statement first. November is here. The holidays are just a couple of weeks away this season. Why not give the gift of comfort to everyone on your list, including yourself with new Tommy John underwear, loungewear, and pajamas? When you give Tommy John, your loved ones are that much more comfortable, so they can do everything better. Make giving Tommy John a holiday tradition. Both women and men love getting the gift of Tommy John. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. One Tommy John fanatic raves. Fantastic Christmas gift that went so right. She loves the PJs. Tommy John is cozy enough to use as sleepwear, stylish enough to wear during casual nights out or quick strolls to the coffee shop, and you're not going to look like you just rolled out of bed, even if you did. I got to tell you, I love my Tommy John product. I literally have no other pairs of underwear. It is just Tommy John. Tommy John loungewear is guaranteed to fit perfectly with comfy, non-pilling, micro-modal fabric, meaning no lint balls, no fuzz, luxuriously soft, tri-blend fabrics with flexible four-way stretch. Shop Tommy John's fantastic Veterans Day sale It's going on right now. Save 25% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com slash Ben. That's 25% off everything for a limited time at tommyjohn.com slash Ben. That's Tommy John. Dot com slash Ben, go check them out right now. OK, so DeSantis introduces himself as the guy who gets things done. Nikki Haley, she introduces herself as sort of the person who is taking data into account. That is really her, her shtick, right? Her shtick is I'm looking at the polling. I'm adjusting based on the polling. If you look at the polling, I'm very durable in a lot of the swing states. right? That is, so she's trying to go after, after Republican mistake number one. There's no feedback loop. So she's saying there is a feedback loop. I'm paying attention to the feedback loop. And that is why you ought to vote for me. Right. So DeSantis is taking on prong two. I do the thing. Haley is taking on prong one. I look I look at the data. So here she was last night introducing herself.
1: You know, Everybody wants to talk about President Trump. Well, I can talk about President Trump. I can tell you that I think he was the right president at the right time. I don't think he's the right president now. I think that he put us $8 trillion in debt and our kids are never going to forgive us for that. I think the fact that he used to be right on Ukraine and and foreign issues, now he's getting weak in the knees and trying to be friendly again. I think that we've got to go back to the fact that we can't live in the past. We can't live in other headlines. We've got to start focusing on what's
0: going to make America strong and proud. Again, yeah, she, she's the I see the data. I see what people want. And I'm going to give it to them. And then finally, you have Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek's shtick is ignoring both of those two rules, right? The data don't really matter very much. And the performative is all there is. That is Vivek Ramaswamy's story. I say that because Vivek has shifted his position on every single issue in this campaign multiple times. But he knows what the base likes to hear. Vivek Ramaswamy is the guy. He, he's basically a Tucker Carlson tweet come to flesh, made flesh. And, and you could see it last night. Now, again, I don't disagree with with virtually anything that Vivek is is saying here. I just wonder what exactly Vivek's strategy is here for, you know, winning a presidential election. So his critiques are right, and then he has no prescription, which is the which is the essence. It really is the essence of performative politics. The essence of performative politics, Bernie Sanders does it on the left, is there are so many problems. Let me tell you about all the problems. There are so many problems, and I hate those problems. They're really bad problems. Those problems suck, man. I hate those problems. Man, I wish somebody would do something about those problems like me. That, that's effectively what Vivek was doing last night. Now, again, I kind of loved this. When he did this, I will admit, like, again, I'm a conservative. I have a guttural, visceral hatred of legacy media. I think they are garbage. I think they are liars, and I think they deserve every bit of scorn that has been heaped upon them in recent years. I also recognize this has nothing to do with winning an election. This has to do with sort of appealing to the online base. So here's Vivek last night.
3: I think there's something deeper going on in the Republican Party here. And I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. we was a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronald McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020. 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. And frankly, look, the people there are cheering for losing in the Republican Party. because this media rigged the 2016 election. They rigged the 2020 election with the Hunter Biden laptop story. And they're going to rig this election. Your time is up. Accountability. Let me turn That's to governor, governor-, governor.
0: Okay, so what he says, that entire critique, again, the critique is largely correct. Right? By the way, when he mentions Ronald Rami McDaniel losing her job, which I've been calling for for what, a year at this point, a year and a half? When he says that, he's not wrong. We should point out, by the way, the reason that Ron Rami McDaniel did not lose her job is because she was supported by Wade Fred, Donald Trump. That is why she's still in her job at the RNC. And then when he says that there should be a debate moderated by Tucker, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk, that, that that's sort of a, a slightly weird take, given that the only one of those figures who actually has voted Republican any time in the recent past, I assume, is Tucker. And Tucker is, um, shall we say, controversial on foreign policy inside Republican halls. If you're really going to do that, you'd need an actual diverse base of, of sort of ideological people. But in any case, the disconnect is between what he says at the beginning, the critique, and then his, and then him saying at the end, This is how we get our country back. What, by criticizing the media? I mean, like, again, I'm in that business. I'm up for it. I'm just wondering, is that really? Like, if we elect you president, Vivek Ramaswamy, is your chief goal going to be criticizing the media? I noticed Trump did that a lot, and then he lost. So actually, what, what you're actually going to need here at some point is to take stock of the first two problems. Data matters, and performative politics is not going to be the solution. Okay, then the debate moved on to foreign policy. And this was sort of fascinating. There's sort of a a tripartite division inside the Republican Party over foreign policy. You've got the very hawkish sort of neocon position represented by Nikki Haley. And then you have the sort of middle of the road position presented by Ron DeSantis. And then you have the sort of full scale quasi isolationist position presented by Vivek Ramaswamy. And these are interesting debates. They really are. The reality is that I think that the Republican Party, to its great discredit, cares very little at this point about policy debates. Because the reality is, we don't know which side of that debate Trump is on. When Trump was actually president, he was kind of a neocon. And then when he's talking about foreign policy, he sounds like vague And then he sometimes looks like, like he's kind of all over the place. So I'm not sure that policy is actually what the Republican Party is about. But it was an interesting debate. We'll get to that momentarily. First, Let us talk about, again, your sleep quality. The fact is poor sleep causes weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, lower productivity. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. If you're struggling with sleep, you need to check out Beam. Beam's top-selling Beam Dream has a brand new formula. Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of Reishi Magnesium, Eltheanin, and Apigenin to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like cinnamon cocoa, chocolate peanut butter, mint chip. Better sleep has never tasted better. Beam sent product down to the office. A lot of my producers have been using Beam to get their sleep. And it's working because you can see the effectiveness of this show. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash Ben. Use code Ben at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash Ben. Use code Ben for up to 40% off. That's shopbeam.com slash Ben. Okay, so the debate then moved on to issues of foreign policy. They They talked about Israel, both DeSantis and Haley sort of mirrored the same perspective, which is that Hamas needs to get mashed, which, of course, is correct. Here was DeSantis last night.
2: I would be telling Bibi, finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. They're terrorists. They're massacring innocent people. They would wipe every Jew off the globe if they could. He cannot live with that threat right by his country, that Hamas should release every hostage and they should unconditionally surrender. I'm sick of hearing the media. I'm sick of hearing other people blame Israel just for defending itself. We will stand with Israel in word and in deed, in public and in private. And I can tell you, as governor, I actually did something about it.
0: Okay, so again, that's his pitch. His pitch is I did something about it. That's that's always the sense pitch. And then you got Ramaswamy. So again, Vivek, he's just like a series of Twitter impulses that are that are made real. So here he was talking about Israel and then he suddenly swivels and talks about the American border. Now, I'm a big fan of of solidifying the American border. I've been calling for the American border to be closed for, for years and years and years. In fact, as long as I can remember talking about the immigration debate, I've talked about the fact that the southern border has been basically unprotected. I don't have any idea what that has to do with Israel destroying Hamas. But here was Vivek Ramaswamy trying to connect the two with the implication being that basically cut Israel loose in the face of all its enemies because we need to protect the border or something, which, again, two disconnected issues. Uh, America can walk and chew gum at the same time as it turns out.
3: The founding vision of Israel was based on the idea that they don't want to depend on anybody else's sympathy or direction in defending themselves. So what I would tell Bibi is that Israel has the right and the responsibility to defend itself. I would tell him to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. And then I'll tell him as president of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. That's his responsibility. This is our responsibility.
0: Okay, that is a complete evasion of the question as to what level of material support you wish to provide to Israel, which is the actual question in that debate. And then Ramaswamy went even further again. Performative, performative, performative. Vivek does not want to be president. He has no intention of being president. Vivek wants to run for Senate from Ohio, or he wants to run for a podcast, or he wants to be in Trump's cabinet. One of those things. But here he was last night going off on Ukraine. And again, I think that a lot of the criticisms of Ukraine's corruption are absolutely true. Ukraine does have serious corruption problems. It has had serious corruption problems for as long as Ukraine has has been in the post-Soviet era. With that said, this is some pretty wild stuff here from Vivek.
3: Ukraine is not a paragon of democracy. This is a country that has banned 11 opposition parties. It has consolidated all media into one state TV media arm. That's not democratic. It has threatened not to hold elections this year unless the US forks over more money. That is not democratic. It has celebrated a Nazi in its ranks, the comedian in cargo pants, a man called Zelensky, doing it in their own ranks. That is not democratic. More facts for you that you won't hear from the mainstream in either party or the mainstream media. The regions of Ukraine that are occupied by Russia right now in the Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk. These are Russian speaking regions that have not even been part of Ukraine since 2014 that other people probably couldn't name those provinces for you. Those are the hard facts. And so to frame this as some kind of battle between good versus evil, don't buy it.
0: Okay, that, that, that is a wild foreign policy stance. I mean, again, Ukraine is indeed very corrupt. I have many, many problems with the Ukrainian government. When he says that Ukraine is basically honeycombed with Nazis in terms of its upper ranks, the government is honeycombed with Nazis and calls Zelensky the comedian in cargo pants. And when he talks about how the occupied regions of of Ukraine, Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, that that these are Russian-speaking regions and therefore what? That Russia had a right to seize those regions in the first place? Or when he suggests is not a battle between good and evil? Well, I mean, both sides don't have to be purely good in order for a particular battle to be between good and evil. And it turns out the invasion of a sovereign country in an attempt to depose the entire country's government on behalf of the most vicious dictator in the region, that's kind of not great. That's kind of not great. But again, Vivek, this is all performative. It's just performative. This is not an actual American foreign policy. No one thinks it is. Here is Nikki Haley taking him to task over this.
1: I am telling you, Putin and President Xi are salivating at the thought that someone like that could become president. First thing I'll tell you is we all remember what that thug did when he invaded Ukraine. We all know that half a million people have died because of Putin.
0: That, that's the basic line that Haley took against Ramaswamy And this turned into even more performative. Basically, anything that Vivek touched in the debate last night became performative. And this is it's interesting just on sort of in a a political level to watch the gap between Vivek and the rest of the field. Vivek is playing the politics of performance art and other people in the field are really not. DeSantis and Haley both would like to be president. Again, I think that they're gonna bumper car each other out. I think that the logic of the election suggests that if Haley were able to gain enough credibility that she knocked out DeSantis, a lot of his support would then go to Trump and then the election is well and truly over. It may be over anyway, but if Haley were to knock out DeSantis, again, his 20% does not go to Haley. His 20%, 10% of it goes to Haley and 10% of it goes to Trump and the election's over. If Haley gets knocked out, presumably nearly all of her support goes to DeSantis because a lot of her support base is rooted in not particularly warm feeling toward Trump. But whatever you think of that internal logic, the, the sort of gap between DeSantis and Haley on the one hand, who actually have been governors, who actually do things on occasion, and Vivek is really, really wide. And you can, you can see this. I mean, last night, Vivek and Haley were going at each other like with with hammer and tongs, he 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 threw out some insults about her her wearing heels, and then he made an implication that DeSantis wore heels, which is just kind of a very online kind of garbage. But uh, but then he went even further and he went after Nikki Haley's daughter. Like, uh, is this guys like Are we even serious here? Here we go.
3: Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the scum. easy answer is actually to say that we're just going to ban one app. We got to go further.
0: So you have the candidates calling each other scum and all the rest of this sort of stuff. Like, is that what Republicans want? I mean, at a certain point, Republicans are gonna have to make a choice because it turns out the American people don't actually love the performative. If there is one message from this debate and from all of politics for the last several years, is that performative politics only works when you are running against Hillary Clinton. That is the only time it works. I'm sorry, maybe the outlier here is not Trump. Maybe the outlier here is Hillary. Is that Hillary was such a damn dislikable politician and everyone hated her for very good reason that literally any performative politician could score points off of her, from Barack Obama in 2008 to Bernie Sanders in 2016 to Donald Trump in 2016. But that's not actually a case for performative politics as a mode of do, of getting things done. So back to the original message. If Trump is the nominee, or if the, whoever is the nominee, but assume that it's Trump for a second, he's going to have to go back to the drawing board and he's going to have to actually think about what do the data tell him? What do the data tell him? Because he did lose in 2020. And I would like to see him not lose if he's the nominee in 2024. And he's going to have to go back to what is his record? What did he do? What will he do from here on in? Not the performative, the actual material. Okay, in just one second. Again, I didn't like a lot of what Vic said last night. But what he said about the media is 100% true. And the media are absolute hot, disgusting garbage. I mean, like they are just a dumpster fire of horror. I'll explain why I say that particularly in just one second first. There's a lot at stake this November, so don't be a chicken and shop at the grocery store like usual instead. Head on over to Good Ranchers. Their Black Friday Your Way sale is live. It's something you don't want to miss. Yes, they have great meat puns, but they have even better meats. This November, you get to choose your favorite meat to get free for a year. Pick a year of free steak, salmon, chicken, or bacon when you subscribe to any box right now. Better yet, When you subscribe to any box on GoodRanchers.com, you not only get a free gift of meat worth up to 480 bucks, you also get 15 bucks off with code Shapiro. The only big deal your grocery store has is on expiring foods. So ditch the meat aisle and subscribe at GoodRanchers.com today. They actually sent me a custom box filled with kosher salmon, and it was indeed delicious. Claiming your year of free meat 15 bucks off, free shipping with my code Shapiro at goodranchers.com. Good Ranchers is the number one place to get all American beef, pork, chicken, and seafood. That is promo code Shapiro at goodranchers.com. Good Ranchers is indeed American meat delivered. It's a fantastic deal. Again, a year of free meat, 15 bucks off, free shipping with my code Shapiro at goodranchers.com. The world's best meat at an amazing price. Goodranchers.com and use promo code Shapiro. Well, meanwhile, as I've said, when Vivek criticized the media, honestly, I I disagree with, with, vague on many, many things. But when it comes to his criticisms of the press, they are, if anything, not actually strong enough. So for example, over in the Middle East, Hamas's friends in the press have now hit upon a new strategy. They're now claiming that Israel is targeting journalists. According to the Washington Post, "Quote: for weeks, hundreds of locally-based journalists in the Gaza Strip have provided the world with intimate views of the devastation on Palestinian lives and homes while trying to find ways to survive themselves and keep their families safe. Yes, we are told, journalists in Gaza are under assault And it's the journalists who are telling us this. But there is another story here. It's another far more nefarious story. And here's the real story. It goes like this. Journalists in the Gaza Strip are typically propagandists for Hamas. That's how they got in. That's why they've been allowed to operate. Hamas deliberately places these pseudo-journalists in areas designed to shield Hamas military resources. That's how it goes over there. Yesterday... Honest Reporting, which is a 501c3 website dedicated to uncovering prejudice in journalism, ran a pretty damn shocking story. They reported that during the October 7th massacre of 1,400 Israelis and the kidnapping of another 240, Gaza-based photojournalists working for the Associated Press and Reuters, so-called stringers for the major wire service, were present. A stringer is an independent contractor, a person who sort of on an individual case-by-case basis is used as a person who does journalism for a particular journalistic outlet that presence could only have occurred with prior coordination with Hamas. So you had, quote-unquote, journalists who are actually just members, adjunct members of Hamas, taking photos of atrocities, and then the AP and Reuters and CNN all using them as, quote-unquote, journalists. As the Honest Reporting says, four names appear on AP's photo credits from the Israel-Gaza border area on October 7th. Hassan Esleya Yusuf Massoud, Ali Mahmoud, and Hatem Ali. Here's a picture of one of them, Hassan Esleya As you can see, He is being kissed by an elderly gentleman. That elderly gentleman is Yahya Sinwar. He is the military leader of Hamas, and he is the mastermind behind October 7th. This is a journalist for CNN. Is a person that CNN decided was actually good, right? CNN decided they would pay this person for his footage. Footage also shows Esleya standing in front of a burning tank during October 7th. As you can see, he's wearing no press vest. No press marking of any sort. He's not a member of the press. He is a Hamas fellow traveler. And he's taking video of it, just like a Hamas member would. They all had GoPros on, right? Here he is, in the middle of the Hamas massacre. This is a journalist. This is a person that CNN calls a stringer journalist for CNN. CNN, when they were informed that they had apparently hired Yahya Sinwar's best friend, released the following statement, quote, while we have not at this time found reason to doubt the journalistic accuracy of the work he has done for us, we have decided to suspend all ties with him. No reason to doubt his journalistic accuracy. I mean, other than the fact that he is, you know, a terrorist supporter and all, and literally had to know, by the way, that the terror attack was going to happen. Otherwise, why was he there? Journalists don't just stand around on the Gaza border. The only reason, quote unquote, journalists are there is because they're in league with Hamas. If there is a surprise attack on a particular site and journalists are there, it's because the journalists knew about that in advance. The other three pseudo journalists were there as well, prepared to take pictures of Hamas's atrocities. And then the wire services paid them for it and gave them photo credits. Now, this, unfortunately, is nothing new. The quote unquote journalists stationed in Gaza either worked directly for Hamas or under the thumb of Hamas. All the way back in 2014, the Times of Israel reported that journalists had been questioned and threatened by Hamas. Photographers who took pictures Hamas didn't like had their cameras confiscated and were kicked out of the Gaza Strip. The Washington Post reported in the same year that Al-Shifa Hospital had, quote, become a de facto headquarters for Hamas leaders who can be seen in the hallways and offices The Middle East correspondent for The Wall Street Journal actually wrote on Twitter at the time that Hamas used al-Shifa as a safe place to see media. But then they inexplicably removed the post. When I say inexplicably, we know exactly why they removed the post. If the post had remained, they would have been kicked out of the Gaza Strip. One French reporter printed a story about being threatened by Hamas and then had removed remove the story for his own safety. Now these reporters are all claiming that if Israel hits the al-Shifa hospital, it's not a military site, despite the fact they have all reported over the course of a decade that this is, in fact, a military site used as a prop front by Hamas. So, when you see journalism from the Gaza Strip, just understand, there are no free journalists in Gaza. Either the journalists are living under Hamas's thumb and doing their work, or they work directly with Hamas. As one Spanish reporter said, quote, We saw the Hamas men hiding behind civilians, but had we dared point the cameras at them, they would have opened fire at us and killed us. So, Here's a big question for you. Would, quote unquote, journalistic outlets like the AP and Reuters use stringers associated with, say, white supremacist groups in order to take pictures at Charlottesville? Let's say that there are a KKK fellow traveler who showed up at that big march in Charlottesville taking pictures. Would the AP have just used him as a stringer or are they only willing to use stringers who associate openly with terrorists and voice their support for Hitler so long as they hate Jews and are Islamic radicals? What moral culpability do the AP and Reuters and CNN bear for printing the propaganda of Hamas and its minions? The answer is they bear an awful lot of responsibility. They are making the world a lot more dangerous. They are promoting Hamas's propaganda, and that, of course, is prolonging the war. As usual, that reality is obscured via projection. So it is Hamas threatening journalists, but we're supposed to believe that it's Israel threatening journalists. Projection is the name of the game in this conflict. Always. Always. It's why we see idiots or moral perverts playing silly semantic games, obviously meant to tar Israel with the crimes of its enemies. We see morons making vague statements about opposing genocide from all sides, which is a bit like saying after you watch O.J. Simpson butcher his ex-wife and then you watch the police arrest him, that you are against violence from both O.J. Simpson and the police on all sides. You Got to watch out for that cruel, horrific violence. Only one side in this conflict is pursuing genocide. It is not Israel. Any implication to the contrary is either idiocy or evil. It's why we see idiots or moral perverts attempting to deflect from Hamas's crimes with talk about Israel's treatment of Arabs in Israel. Despite the fact that 20% of Israel's population is Arab, that any Jew who wanders into Gaza or Janine will be summarily murdered. It's why we see idiots or moral perverts pointing to civilian casualties in Gaza and murdered civilians in Israeli villages and pretending that these are somehow exactly the same thing. The value of every human life is absolutely infinite. That does not mean that the causes of every death are equivalent. For Israel's enemies and for Hamas's most ardent advocates, every single thing is projection. And the press are certainly Israel's enemies, which is why they will hire supposed journalists who work directly with and for Hamas. In just one second, we'll get to the impact of this pathetic moral equivocation and the media's malfeasance here, which is despicable. We'll get to that in one second. First, from maintaining control of your assets to easing the burden on your loved ones, an estate plan can ensure that your family stays prepared and protected. It's really, really important stuff. We're all going to plot at some point. you got to make sure that how you dispose of your assets is written down on paper in legal writing because otherwise the government is going to come in and decide who your kids go to. The government is going to come in and they're going to decide how your assets get distributed and they're just going to grab a big chunk of them. If you're looking for a way to set up your estate to offer financial benefits and more, you need to check out Trust and Will. Traditional estate planning can cost thousands of dollars. The one-size-fits-all templates might not capture all the important details of the life you've built. With Trust and Will, they can protect your legacy from the comfort of your home starting at just $159. They've simplified the process of creating and managing your will or trust online from finding out what's right for your family to finalizing documents with a notary. My wife and I, we've had to do our will over and over like multiple times. And it is really, really important. And it can be really, really complicated. But with Trust and Will, it does not have to be. Trust and Will has an earned an overall rating of excellent with thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot. Gain peace of mind today with Trust and Will. Get 10% off, plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash Shapiro. That's trustandwill.com slash Shapiro. Also, DW Books, we got a brand new book out from Faith Moore, Andrew Clavin's talented daughter. She has written a new rendition of the age-old Christmas classic, Christmas Carol, but it's with a K. It's a modern twist. On the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, except with a female protagonist in a world where boss babes are championed at the expense of family, Faith makes the case that having what matters is far better than having it all. It's called Christmas Carol with a K. It is now available to order on Amazon or wherever you get your books today. Okay, meanwhile, okay, the wages of the evil press coverage and really is evil. I mean, th- there's video of that quote unquote journalist for CNN literally riding on the back of a motorcycle carrying a grenade during October 7th. That is a terrorist that CNN basically hired to take pictures. That sort of propagandistic nonsense has an effect. The moral equivocation, the projection has an impact. The impact is people who literally believe that is morally acceptable to stand with Hamas. This is why you see congressional staffers walking out of Congress to demand a ceasefire yesterday. Here's what that looked like.
1: We are congressional staffers on Capitol Hill, and we are no longer comfortable being
3: silent. We were horrified by the brutal October 7th attacks on Israeli civilians, and we are horrified by the overwhelming response by the Israeli government that has killed thousands of innocent Palestinian civilians in Gaza. Our constituents are pleading for a ceasefire, and we are the staffers answering their calls every day.
1: Most of our bosses on Capitol Hill are not listening to the people they represent. We demand our leaders speak up, call for a ceasefire, a release of all hostages and an immediate de-escalation now. We are gathered here today to mourn the loss of every single beautiful and innocent life. We join now in a moment of silence in interfaith prayer for those they're,
0: for, they're, they're not, they're not. Give me a break. Okay, by the way, you can tell that these are people who don't actually stand by the courage of their convictions because they won't take off their masks. The reason that they're wearing masks, and this has now happened, I was at University of Wisconsin and some schmuck got up wearing a mask to ask a really dumb question about AI generated images that the Israelis were putting out or some such nonsense. And the reason they're hiding their faces is because they should be ashamed of the positions they are taking. By the way, their Congress people know exactly who they are. You know who your staffers are in Congress. If you're still employing morons who are, who are, doing the propaganda work of Hamas. You might want to think about whether that's a good idea or not. Meanwhile, pro-Palestinian protesters disrupted the House Judiciary Committee on free speech. Again, what, what lends these people the moral credibility is the media. Hamas is playing a game. The game is if they can get the media to parrot their propaganda, they can push for a ceasefire. There's only one party that wants a ceasefire here and it's the party that's losing. That would be Hamas. So here's the disruption yesterday.
3: Thank you, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Nadler and members of the committee. Committee will be in order. Committee will be in order. These sorts of
0: disturbances are happening all the time. All the time. I love when they say this guy's a pro Palestinians does not equal anti Semitism. Well, no, it's being pro Hamas that equals anti Semitism, and that's exactly what you're doing. That distinction between pro Palestinian and pro Hamas has been utterly obliterated by the movement in favor of Hamas. How many of these protesters are willing to say that Hamas should surrender? The answer, of course, is zero. Zero. They do not exist. Where are they? They won't say it. Why won't they say it? Because if they did, then they would have to admit that Israel is right. And they can't do that. They have to admit that Israel has a reason to exist. They can't do that either. They will never, ever admit that Hamas ought to surrender. Instead, what they'll do is you'll say things like, is Hamas a terrorist group? And they'll go, Hamas is a terrorist group and Israel is evil. Okay, that false moral equivocation is the entire design. They don't have to prove. This has been the game all along. For those who wish to see the Jewish state destroyed, the game all along has never been to prove Palestinian Authority, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, that these are in any way good liberty-seeking organizations or even that the Palestinian people who are in Gaza or in Janine, that those people desperately want Western-style liberty and democracy. They don't. They re- There's no polling to suggest they do. Zero, zero. It is evident- that is an evidence-free proposition. They never make that case. Instead, what they do is say, sure, we'll condemn terrorism, but the real terrorists are the Israelis. That's the game that they like to play. And then that allows them to engage in whatever sort of evil they want to engage in. You saw this at Concordia University last night. Here's one student where the mask is just off. Here she is screaming what she really thinks, which is, this is about the Jews. She's screaming, you effing K word. And then here are uh, students at Concordia University who are, um, who are trying to rip up an Israeli flag and starting a physical altercation over it. That's not the only physical altercation. This is going to get worse, by the way. Last night, there were um, pro-Hamas protesters who attacked people outside a showing of a film that was compiled from all the GoPro cameras from the Hamas terrorists. Israel put together this film. They've been showing it to journalists, but they're doing it in secret. Why? Because it's so astonishingly awful that it simply cannot be released to the public. So what did pro-Hamas protesters do? They started trying to beat people up outside the showing at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. I know it well. I went to high school literally next door. I used to be in the Museum of Tolerance pretty much every day. They would like, do you know how insane, insanely evil and perverse you have to be to beat people up outside a showing of atrocities that were pursued by a terrorist group? But that's exactly what happened last night. Here they were. as Gal Gadot was showing this thing. And apparently the best way to do PR for your own side is to beat up people who are seeking to learn about what Hamas did the the other day. And the moral equivalence, the moral equivocation that has been promoted by the media here is absolutely vile. It's absolutely vile. And it is what is causing a prolonging of the conflict. It's what Hamas is hoping for. In the same way that the Viet Cong hoped that the media would do their dirty work and eventually undercut American support for the war in Vietnam, Hamas is hoping that the media do their dirty work and eventually undercut support for Israel. That is their entire goal. Meanwhile, the American administration is already sort of making overtures to the bad guys based on this moral equivalence nonsense. What they're doing is they're trying to now distinguish between Hamas and the rest of everything going on in the Middle East. Oh, well, the, the Palestinian people, they hate Hamas. They hate. Now, again, I wish I really wish I wish that the Palestinian people hated Hamas so much they overthrew them and actually put in place a government that wanted to build things instead of bomb things. That would be amazing. It ain't true. I'm sorry. It ain't. The same thing happens to be true with regard to the West Bank. Judea and Samaria. The fact is that people in Janine are not looking to an elect to elect a San Francisco mayor. They're looking to elect elect another terrorist government, which is why there was an assassination attempt on Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority the other day. Mahmoud Abbas, by the way, is a Holocaust denier who actively pays terrorists. It is a, it is a part of Palestinian authority law that anyone who kills a Jew, fa- their family gets a stipend. They get a stipend from the Palestinian Authority, paid for in large part by your taxpayer dollars. I mean, like, that where is the evidence? But if you can craft in your own mind this bizarre false narrative, then this allows you to provide some sort of middle ground between evil and not evil, right? That's which is what so many people are looking for. This is why there's now an open debate that is broken up over, over what happens in Gaza after all of this is over. So Israel has said that there's going to need to be some form of military occupation of Gaza. Obviously, that's true. In the same way that if there's a massive crime outbreak in a major city anywhere in the West, police are going to need to go in and they're they're going to need to stay there for quite a while. That's just the way that it works. But Tony Blinken is saying, no, 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 we can't have that. We can't have that. Instead, their preferred solution is unified Palestinian authority rule in Gaza and West Bank. I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. The reason that's, how do I know that's ridiculous? The Palestinian Authority barely even governs Judea and Samaria. The last time the Palestinian Authority was put up for election in 2005, 2006, in the Gaza Strip, not only did they lose, they were then summarily murdered by Hamas. They lost the election and then Hamas killed all of them. The reason, again, that Mahmoud Abbas has not held an election in anywhere in, in the Palestinian occupied areas. He's not held an election since 2008. Why? He is afraid he will lose because the population is extremely radicalized. That is just a reality. You can try to walk your way through this, but that happens to be the case.
1: Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking out on the conflict as he wraps G7 talks in Japan.
0: No
2: reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. No attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. No reduction in the territory of Gaza. We must also ensure no terrorist threats can emanate from the West Bank.
0: Okay, well, um, in order for that to happen, guess what? Israel is going to have to actually retain military presence in all of these areas. But because the press lie about this sort of stuff, because they pretend that Israel is somehow the equivalent of its enemies, that's how you end up with the solution that Israel shouldn't be in these areas to retain actual security. And it is a lie. There's, the, Believe it or not, there's an actual good piece at CNN.com. I know, I was shocked by it also. By a guy named John Spencer. He's chief of urban warfare studies at Modern War Institute at West Point And co-director of the Modern War Institute's Urban Warfare Project. And here's what he wrote. He said, quote, All war is hell. All war is killing and destruction. And, you, and historically, civilians are inordinately the innocent victims of war. Urban warfare is a unique type of hell, not just for soldiers who face assaults from a million windows or deep tunnels below them, but especially for civilians. Non-combatants have accounted for 90% of casualties per international humanitarian experts in the modern wars that have occurred in populated urban areas like Mosul or Raqqa, even when a Western power like the United States is leading or supporting the campaign. The destruction and suffering, he says, as awful as they are, don't automatically constitute war crimes. Otherwise, nearly any military action in a populated area would violate the laws of armed conflict, rules distilled from a complicated patchwork of international treaties, court rulings and historic conventions. Scenes of devastation like Israel's strikes on the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza earlier this week quickly spark accusations Israel is engaging in war crimes. But war crimes must be assessed on the evidence and the standards of armed conflict, not a quick glimpse at the harrowing aftermath of an attack. He says, I have seen nothing. That shows that Israeli defense forces are not following the laws of wars in Gaza, particularly when the charges that the IDF is committing war crimes so often come too quickly for there to have been an examination of the factors that determine whether an attack and the resulting civilian casualties are lawful. The factors that need to be assessed are the major dimensions of the most commonly agreed to international humanitarian law principles, military necessity, proportionality, distinction, humanity and honor. Israel has pledged to obey international law proportionality is a requirement to take into account how much civilian harm is anticipated in comparison to the expected concrete and direct military advantage, according to UN protocols. In other words, a high civilian death count in Jabalia could potentially be considered legal under international law, so long as the military objective is of high value. The Israeli Defense Forces said the intended target in that case was a senior Hamas commander who oversaw all military operations in northern Gaza, neutralizing him as an objective that most likely clears the proportional bar. He says that, frankly, the IDF has been implementing and in some cases going beyond many of the best practices developed to minimize the harm of civilians in similar large scale urban battles. These IDF practices include calling everyone in a building to alert them of a pending airstrike and giving them time to evacuate, a tactic I've never seen elsewhere anywhere in my decades of experience, as it also notifies the enemy of the attack and sometimes even dropping small munitions on top of a building to provide additional warning. They've been conducting multiple weeks of requests that civilians evacuate certain parts of Gaza using multimedia broadcast text and flyer drops. They've provided routes that will not be targeted, so civilians have paths to non-combat areas. Though there have been some tragic reports that Palestinians from northern Gaza, who have relocated to the south, were subsequently killed as the war rages throughout the Strip. When Hamas uses a hospital, school, or mosque for military purpose, it can lose its protected status and become a legal military target. Israel must still make clear attempts to get as many civilians out as possible, but the sites don't need to be clear of civilians before being attacked. So again, this is a military expert who's saying Israel is not violating the laws of war, but that's not what the media say. The media, in all of their wisdom, all these morons who've never spent five minutes examining military strategy or even international law accusing Israel of war crimes. And the goal there is to do the work of Hamas, to do the propaganda of Hamas, to do the projection that Hamas wants people to do. What is that going to end with? Well, if the media got their way, it would end with Hamas still in power. If the media got their way, it would end with more people dead in the long run. because it turns out, that when you protect terrorists, they become more plentiful. It turns out that hope is the actual soil from which terrorism grows, not despair. One of the great lies of the media is that it is despair that breeds terrorism. That is absolutely untrue. It is hope, immediate hope, that what you are doing is going to make a difference that breeds terrorism. That's why people do it. And the media are providing that hope by propagating the lies of Hamas and contracting with actual terrorists who are shooting film when they're not shooting Israeli civilians. All righty, coming up, we'll be joined by Senator Ted Cruz. He has a brand new book out. In order to hear that, you have to be a subscriber. Become a member. Use code Shapiro at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. And click that link in the description to join us.